So you think that fear is holding you back and your own demons are often your greatest enemy. But actually, comprehension of fear has been shown time and time again to deliver the greatest breakthroughs. And with practice, you can condition impulses of fear to be your best friend. So join us on this episode of Subject Matter, where we explore why how you think of fear might not be entirely accurate and how with the right habits, we can eventually turn our old nemesis into a compass that's pointing to growth. Welcome to Subject Matter. Benjamin, it is our first ever episode of Subject Matter. For those of you who are curious about what Subject Matter is, we invite you to check out episode zero, which is posted on our iTunes account. But Ben, first episode, tell me how you're feeling right now. Tom, I am beyond excited. This has been a project that's been in the pipeline for a few months now, and I'm incredibly, incredibly pumped to start sharing it with the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of sharing things with the world, why don't we share one thing that happened to you this week that pushed you forward? Oh, good question. Absolutely. Well, I'm working on a project right now as a ghostwriter and storyteller by trade. And the project ended up taking on a totally different dimension. And while I can't go into specifics, let's just say that I was an architect. I thought I was building a hotel. And then that quickly, the planning permission changed into a penthouse. And so my growth curve is super steep right now. I'm having to learn a lot of new skills very quickly, but it's a good problem to have. Exactly the same way with this podcast. I mean, I've never done anything like this before. This is pushing me forward. How about you, Tom? What's pushed you forward this week? Uh, that's a great question. And first off, I hope to get an invite to that penthouse because I've always been one for good city skyline views. In terms of this week, we picked up a, a few new clients and we are working on doing some guerrilla marketing for products that matter in the marketplace. Now, we'll be releasing more information on that as information comes in. But like you, I'm entering a steep growth curve, which is perhaps most fitting for subject matter to be fully ignited. Absolutely. And the idea of your growth curve is actually a topic we are going to talk about in a later episode. But for today, let's bring things back to our discussion. Episode one, we are going to be talking about how you can make fear your best friend. Now, fear, if I tell you about the topic, it's probably something that doesn't ignite much joy or happiness or even confidence. When I think of fear, I think of me being scared of heights, which I absolutely am, or getting ready to stand on stage before I speak. Sometimes I get nervous or doing something that's out of my comfort zone. And conventionally, fear is really something that has held us back. And the reasons for this is not something that is in the modern age. This is in fact something that goes back way back. And to see the reason for why fear plays such a binding stranglehold of a role on many of our lives, we have to go back and explore our evolutionary roots. You see, because our ancestors, before the days of penthouses and Wi-Fi, back before even houses, when they were living in caves and tribal societies, they were evolved social exclusion at all costs. That's because if you were in your tribe and if you did something out of the ordinary or even in your feudal village, you lost access to your community. And in those times, your community was your lifeblood. This was your food, it was your water, your shelter, and your mates. And quite simply, if you were a social outcast, you probably wouldn't survive. 
And so we've evolved this mechanism to control when we do something out of the ordinary, to rein in our impulses and to say, no, 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 Ben, we don't want you to do that. That's a bad idea. And that feeling in the bottom of your stomach, that is fear. Now, fear is a funny one because it's completely irrational. A lot of the time, we think that we can't control it. Um, but actually, you can control it. And that's what we're going to be exploring here today on subject matter. We're going to be diving deep into both sides of the debate on fear. And even though for some of us, it might be something that rules our lives right now, if we start thinking about it slightly differently, there may even be potential to use fear to help propel us forward. Now, for most of us currently, that is definitely not the case. Fear rarely is our best friend, let alone a force for good at all. It's pretty widely thought that fear is, in most ways, an anchor. It holds you in place. Now, according to Napoleon Hill in Think and Grow Rich, there are six types of fear that we can use to categorize how we are anchored. There is a fear of old age, of obviously growing older through our human lifespan. There is a fear of bad health, of worrying about our current and future illnesses. There's a fear of losing love, whether that be family or significant other. There's the fear of death, where our lives are coming to an end at some point and using that finite ending as an excuse to not do things that we believe in. Most importantly, however, is the fear of poverty and a fear of criticism that holds most people back, especially in our hyper-connected age. A fear of poverty, where we are then held against resources and unable to spend and actively work our way into a society fit that we want, that's often very damning for most people. And even worse than that, a fear of criticism, of being mocked, of being excommunicated or in a feudal village type example, being removed from local resources, that fear of criticism is often the biggest thing that holds us all back. So these are powerful types of fear. These are powerful anchors. But the truth is, these are all stuck in your mind. And for some of us more than others, these triggers take deep root. And for one man, fear was so powerful that it almost stopped their magnum opus getting published and shared with the world completely. I am talking about, of course, the author Kafka. Now, Kafka has written several books, but his most seminal work was the metamorphosis. And this is about a man who one day wakes up and finds that he's been transformed into a giant insect. And it's been discussed by critics and philosophers in the years since. But what a lot of people don't actually know about metamorphosis is that it very nearly never saw the light of day. And that was because Kafka didn't want any of his works to be published. His fear was holding him back from what people might actually think if they were to read his work. And so on his deathbed, he commanded that all of his works be burned and never saw the light of day. And thankfully, the person who heeded this request decided to actually read the metamorphosis, see how amazing it was, and denied Kafka his very last death right of having his work go to the grave with him. And now metamorphosis has been distributed all over the world. Imagine being the guy who gets to read metamorphosis and then gets the bragging rights of, hey, so no big deal. I mean, what did you guys read last week? Oh, I discovered metamorphosis. Not much. How about you? <laughs> well, whether we are reading a copy of GQ or reading a copy of metamorphosis or even just the plain old Sunday Times, someone has had to put pen to paper to make that happen. And when we are putting our ideas out there, it's undoubtedly 
a case that we might be fearful of what other people think. And for Kafka, he was so scared that he let that fear hold him back. But fear actually goes beyond just individual torment. In fact, it scales more than any other emotion out there. Let's just look at the fear that corporate cultures have for startups actually eating them, or the fear that these startups themselves have for running out of runway or having to close down. Every single day of every single year, businesses go to war out of fear of not being able to stay alive and for fear of their competitors beating them. And this fear doesn't just apply to the business realm as well. We need only look through history very briefly, and we can see the nationalist fear that incited the anti-Jewish pogroms in the Russian Empire, or the rise of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, similarly founded upon a nationalist fear. And so as we can see, this is not a small-scale emotion. This is a delicate emotion and something that when we're dealing with, we should tread very carefully. There's certainly a delicate balance between fear holding you back and pushing you forward, without a doubt. There's an interesting contrast between Socrates, who claimed to know nothing, and Epictetus, a philosopher who knew the difference between what is not and what is in your control, there's an interesting balance of how two different perspectives then govern the world of fear and affects what needs to be prioritized, what needs to be heightened, what needs to be underscored. And it's these perspectives that then kind of give you the ability to make that next step. It took a long, long time for the first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, a man who has been lauded in many history books, who has been discussed by historians probably as one of the top 10 most discussed characters of human history. It took a while for Julius Caesar to actually achieve something great. Actually, at 31 years old, he was massively depressed because he had looked at the Roman world around him who heralded victory and honor above all else, and that he hadn't achieved anything yet. And so there he was, bottoming out at 31 years old, Julius Caesar, pre-Julius Caesar, and it took him hitting rock bottom in order to him to finally regain the ability to look up rather than down, which then took him to victory against Pompey in Roman Civil War, amongst many other massively lauded Roman victories in the era. So the history of Caesar and the creation of Caesar that we know today overlooks this period of him being depressed at 31 because the perspective hadn't yet evolved. So what's interesting is that he hit that rock bottom. He hit that point where he was at his worst, worst possible state, but it ended up driving growth because action out of everything cures fear. Action against Pompey, action with the Roman military, action in the Roman Senate, action cures fear. But fear isn't just something that's confined to our history books. It's something that we see playing out in the present day today. And if I had to think of someone who is in many ways a modern day Caesar and the king of his craft, that would be, in my opinion, the highest paid actor of 2017. And that is, of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. If I'm looking at Hollywood, he is really the face of it right now. Any movie that he goes into commands a blockbuster presence. But The Rock has not always been this mega movie star as he is today. He had to start somewhere, as we all do. And in fact, when The Rock was just Dwayne Johnson back in 1995, he wasn't just starting out. He was dead broke because he realized in 95, he was walking down the street and saw that he had just seven bucks in his pocket. 
And he said to himself two things. One, I'm broke as hell. But number two, I know that one day I won't be. Now, imagine to yourselves, dear listeners, that you have just $7 to your name, not just in the bank account where you can pull out money, but just there in your wallet. Think about how that feels. That's not a pleasant sensation. And as The Rock knew, the only way was up. This was the lowest moment in his life. To make a terrible punny joke, he'd hit rock bottom. But he knew that the only way he was going to grow was by acting because action cures fear. And today, many years later, he has built a sprawling empire ranging across entertainment, across films, across wrestling, you name it, he's probably done it. But the thing to remember with The Rock is the name that he gave to this empire. The name for everything he built is called Seven Bucks Productions. Every time The Rock walks into his office and sees the sign above the door, he is reminded of the lowest point in his life. That was the moment when Dwayne Johnson was most fearful of where he was going to go forward. He had nothing else to lose. And that was what made him dangerous. And just like Caesar, that was what allowed him to grow to such extraordinary heights. And so The Rock didn't let fear like Kafka hold him down and confine him. He reminded himself of that lowest moment and he used that seven bucks to become an anchor for growth. You know, Ben, that's such an inspirational story, but the game has changed. We live in a world where like a media blast can be delivered from New York to Shanghai in a heartbeat, which means that we have ultimate visibility over all of these inspirational stories. We've got plenty of modern day Caesars and plenty of modern day rocks where somebody has hit rock bottom and like they fought their way back and clawed their way back. So we're so over-inspired. We listen to posts on motivation. We talk about like, what our favorite quote of the day is, and we consistently recycle other people's stories as a vehicle for our own growth. And what this ignores is that we're so over-inspired that we lose the ability to act in the first place. We keep talking about how action cures fear. It was the action after that $7 realization that mattered. It was the action after Julius Caesar bottomed out at 31 that mattered. And we live in a generation where people consistently push that action and kick it down the can. And in a world where we're less tied to communities more than ever before, because the nature of our digital communities has flattened and evolved from prehistoric times, like, I mean, that we're less reliant on these immediate needs of resources, immediate needs of companionship, but we still have like, all this information of other communities and what they're doing. So it actually kind of works against us. So there's no need to let the fear of criticism and the fear of action box us in unless we let it. So how do we kind of use that as a compass for growth? And Ben, there's actually a kind of a great example I wanted to pick out just for you is that Fear, no matter, as, no matter how inspired we are, is still a huge factor in how we act. Uh, a recent Business Insider study of 50,000 Britons found out that a fear of failure is killing the country's entrepreneurial spirit. About 60% of respondents in their 20s and 30s said that fear of criticism was actually the reason that they hadn't started a, any new risky venture. So this is actively holding back not just people, not just a kind of a whole civilization, but it's holding back the mind share of a country. The good news is, and what I want to emphasize, is that this can be controlled as long as you kind of critically realize that action cures fear and that these things can then lead to more actions, 
more things that build on a legacy of Caesar and go build the Roman Empire of your life. So if action cures fear, the question then is how can we practically apply this principle? What's the formula to start using fear in an effective sense? Now, there's a great book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving, and you can probably guess the last word by Mark Uh, Manson. And one of the main points he makes in this book is that action is never beyond your reach. If he was studying a maths problem with his professor, the professor would say, just start writing and you'll begin to figure it out. And the act of writing actually got you there. So rather than trying to get inspired or motivated to act, you simply have to break down your task into the smallest possible action to allow you to move forward. If you're trying to write a book, then you need to go ahead and open your laptop and get a blank piece of paper out and write the title. It's that simple because the act of making that initial decision allows you to then move forward and start breaking free of that fear. Now, the question is, if we know that action is what cures it, how do we know what to act on? And a very common prioritization exercise in terms of how to see what you should be working on is the Eisenhower matrix, publicized by the infamously effective president Eisenhower himself. It's very simple. Imagine a two by two grid, so a square with four boxes in. You know, Ben, it's kind of funny that it's called the Eisenhower matrix, named after a US president and not perhaps the Churchill matrix named after a British prime minister, isn't it? I mean, we peaked about a hundred years earlier when we controlled a quarter of the world. So not just, just saying, but we, we can be productive and effective when we need oh to Oh my be. goodness. The, uh, the ultimate humble brag. So oh, yeah, I, we, we civilized the entire known world, but hey, yeah, you can have this little win. <laughs> hey, if, if you want to play that card, then I'm, I'm going to go all the way to the bank with it. But our man Eisenhower has been used by Brits and Americans, and I'm sure lots of other nationalities alike. And here's how it works. Very simply, in the top along the y-axis, you write down tasks that are urgent and not urgent. And then in the x-axis, you write important and not important. And so what you're left with is then four boxes, one, two, three, and four. Now, you essentially want to get rid of three and four. Number four, as you can probably guess, is not urgent and not important. These are tasks that you want to delete as soon as possible. Box number three is those horrendously deceptive tasks that are urgent but not important. These are the ones that while away your time. These ones, if they're urgent, they need to be delegated, given to someone else. So then this leaves us with the other two boxes. Number one, urgent and important, the ones that we do straight away. And then number two is the critically important ones, which is the important but not urgent. These are the ones on the delayed fuse, like redesigning your website, taking the time to figure out who your target audience is, where you're moving, etc. So prioritize in the Eisenhower matrix numbers one and two, and that will allow you to act and make sure that you're acting on the things that actually move the needle. Now, Ben, there is a difference between using frameworks strategically and then getting caught in a trap of over-analysis paralysis. So what is over-analysis paralysis? It's essentially the act of overthinking every single little step that you're doing. So if you're going to break out a to-do list, right? If you're going to go out and say, hey, I want to write a book. If you're breaking it out as, hey, we've got 20 chapters to write and we're going to edit here and we're going to get review here. Okay, that's fine. That works. And you can sort that into your Eisenhower matrix or whatever framework. But if you go out and you say, okay, write the first 10 words. 
All right, right, the next 20 words. All right, after that, you know, go to the bathroom, go get a coffee, come back, right, the next 30 words. If you over plan like that, you're just opening yourself up for interruptions, for the inability to get the very thing done that you set out to get done. So too much planning will kill your growth. There's only so many lists that you can make before it becomes procrastination in its own form. So it doesn't matter if you have seven bucks in your pocket or seven million. If you overanalyze everything, you will fail in achieving what you set out to achieve. So while I haven't had seven million bucks in my pocket, Tom, I have had seven and I do know what it feels like to be broke. Because here on Subject Matter, we embody the principles that we speak about. And that's not to say that I'm going to go ahead and make myself broken homeless just to talk about the themes we have on the episode. But this is referring to a time earlier last year when I moved to New York City from London. I had a loving girlfriend in a long-distance relationship. And at the time, I was paying rent in both London and New York. And I realized in the second week that my bank balance was not going to support the rent that I had to bring in. And so I realized out of necessity that I had to act, that I had to find some way to bring in some extra money. And that was the fear that drove me to act and to start up the business, which I've now managed to take full time. And so that fear actually was able to become my best friend. It was a factor that was squarely in my line of sight. And it made me realize that I don't have a choice. And as soon as the element of choice is removed, dear listeners, that's when you become dangerous. That necessity is what can propel you to act. Fear, after all, limits movement only if you let it. I love the way you just phrased the ability of choice and what that gave you in terms of you know, back against the wall and forces your action in that next step. Fear, after all, is like an anchor of a ship in harbor. It's safe, it's complacent, it's unmoving. A ship is not meant to remain unmoving, but rather to explore the many ports and currents of the world. The action then is to pull the anchor of fear out of the harbor and to move swiftly towards the new destination that will form the ultimate character behind that journey. Fear is the lever by which unmet potential is either held back or released. So there you have it, listeners. Fear might be that anchor that holds you back and dictates your limits, but there might be more to it. And if you choose to think about it differently, it could even become an asset that works for you and helps drive your growth forward. But where you choose to draw the line or pull that lever is up to you. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Tom, for joining me as always. If you enjoyed what you've heard here today, then you can subscribe on iTunes as we'll have new episodes coming to you every single Tuesday. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week on Subject Matter. And if you like what you've heard here today, then you can go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. We've got new episodes of Subject Matter coming out every single week for the next four months. And so if you do like what you've heard, it would mean a lot to us if you could go ahead and subscribe, because according to the algorithm gods of iTunes, your subscription means that we have a higher chance of getting seen in new upcoming podcast categories. So once again, if you do like what you've heard, we would absolutely love if you could subscribe on iTunes.